0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We're here today with Bjarke Gottfriedsen, founder and CEO of a company in Cape Town, South Africa, called X in a Box. X in a Box makes modular hardware that helps students learn about science, technology, engineering, and math, particularly in how it applies to the Internet of Things. Bjarke, welcome to Knowledge at Wharton High School.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me.
0: So I want to know more about your company. Tell us about X in a Box.
1: So X in a Box was started um, four years ago um, because there was a need for um, try to get students, high school students, especially in South Africa, to be interested in STEM, science, technology, engineering and math. Uh, we had a problem in South Africa that uh, we had a lot of bursary or scholarships that uh, both universities and private institutions were giving out, but there was not enough takers. The students coming out of the high school was not qualified enough uh, to um, um, to take up uh, engineering studies. So we were hired to actually try to figure out, can we can we try to create some excitement in the high schools for STEM? So... Judy, uh, my co-founder here, and I, we decided we have to find something that's really interesting. And we decided space is the stuff. So we decided that uh, we have to come up with a way that high school students could build satellites. And we had to figure out a way that could do that without it required a lab or a lot of investment for the different schools, since many schools in South Africa don't have that kind of uh, a funding. So we uh, bought the first privately owned satellites in Africa, it turned out to be. And we went here to the U.S. to learn a little bit more about uh, satellites and, and uh, electronics in general. And we ran into um, Professor Bob Twix at Moorhead State University in Kentucky. And um, they had a program trying to get especially women to uh, get into engineering. Uh, and and space science at the Moorhead University. So we adopted that program to go back to South Africa and it there was um, it was a little bit of electronics that have to be assembled. So it required some kind of lab equipment um, and we decided uh, after a year of running that program that now we have to have something that requires nothing, just your hands. So we came up with this X in a box solution and um, and. You know, the, the, it's actually very simple. It's kind of like Lego style. You have like small squares of electronic components and you click them together with a little connector and the only thing you need is your hands. And then you build an electronic circuit that way. And what happened was that uh, we had great success with it in, in South Africa. So we took it back to the U.S. and showed it to the guys at Moorhead University. And thought that was actually a cool project. and um, And they were looking for something where high school students could build satellites. So, in late 2016, uh, they got a contract with Virginia Space, who launches the Antares rocket to the International Space Station. And I got some space on the outside of the rocket to launch satellites from. And uh, we started a program together. So, Virginia Space is uh, f- funding this thing here. Bob Twix, um, who runs the Twix Space Lab, um, got a contract to put all this thing together. And we built the components uh, that the students was going to uh, put into the satellites, the payload, as it's called. And uh, another company in Vienna was building the actually satellite frame. And it's not big. It's like four by four inches and half an inch thick. So it's a very small satellite. And now we have uh, 63 schools and universities in Virginia mainly. There's also a few outside that is uh, building a satellite. And first time it's going to fly is in April uh, next year, so sixty-three satellites are flying. Fifty-five of them are flying with with X chips, which we call our small components, and the rest is uh, some of the university have built their own payload. But students actually are sitting in a classroom without any lab, with just a normal classroom, and building these satellites, and they send them to um, uh, to um, the guys who's integrating, putting it together, and they're going to fly in space, and they're going to get the data. It's uh, using a technology um, where it sends the data to another satellite, and they get it over the internet. So they're going to see the data from the satellite via the internet. So that was how the project got started.
0: Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about these X-chips and and the sensors that you actually have in the satellites. What, What do they do?
1: So so we have a lot of different X chips right now. I think we have around seventy-five of these different X chips, and we're coming out with another seventy-five early next year. So, so there's different categories of chips. So, the the ones that are easiest to understand is the sensors. So we, for example, have a weather sensor. It gives temperature, humidity, and pressure. And when you have those three, you can calculate altitude. You can calculate dew point. You can calculate cloud base. So. The sensors gives you an opportunity to uh, interact with the real world, which uh, is the exciting part of this. So, there is a couple of other uh, components that you need. You need some power for this. You need some an interface so you can connect it to your computer. When you program it, um, you need a little CPU or core. We call it that. You can program. And uh, initially, we provide the program ready made for the for the schools. But the idea is that they very quickly get into programming themselves. And they can then read the data, and they can upload the data to a, to a database of their own or one that they can borrow from somewhere else, and uh, they can then see the data. And the whole idea with this way of programming is that they learn to code, but they learn to code in the real world. Where we normally learn to program. We just have a screen, a keyboard, and a mouse, and and we, we the data is kind of like just simulated. We're not having real data. Maybe we read them from somewhere from the internet. But when you code with sensors like this thing here, you have like a temperature sensor where you can put your finger on and change the temperature. Or you can uh, blow in a humidity sensor and see that uh, you actually have um, 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 humid air coming out of you and you, there's a light sensor where you can put your torch from your uh, smartphone on it or you can... Covered with hands or fingers and see that how the light levels are. There's a UVA and UVB sensor. You can take it outside and see that UVA and UVB radiation is still there, even if it's on a cloudy day or under a tree. And there's lots and lots of those sensors. So with these X-chips, they can connect them. initially when when uh, they get a class kit uh, from us, there's a number of different standard projects they can play around with. But then many of the students choose to go their own route. They get some sensors themselves and they start developing uh, more advanced projects out of that.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about the students who have actually worked on your projects?
1: Yeah, so so our goal was high school students uh, when we started. So um, uh, in South Africa, high schools are from grade 8 to 12. So we were targeting uh, 9 to 11 The last year, the students were very busy with their exams, so we were kind of like going a little bit earlier in. And uh, initially, many of the students, they they like to just measure a number of things that we have no idea about. So we all have kind of like an idea about how hot or cold it is in a room. We know how cold or hot it is here right now. It's kind of like plus minus, you know, a few degrees. But we don't know necessarily what the light level is in here, because we're not used to that. We don't know what the humidity is. We don't have a clear idea if it's a lower or higher pressure than normal. So when the students have these X-chips, they kind of like learn about the environment that way. So in Italy, they just plug them together. We have a little screen so they can see the data on the screen or they connect them to a, uh, to a database. They create a dashboard so they can create a graph and see it like that. Or they download it to Excel and, and look at it that way. So some of the students have then developed. So there's a student from uh, Bishop O'Connell uh, High School in in uh, Arlington, Virginia. She's um, been able to get some tomato seeds from the International Space Station that was um, uh, grown there. And she's uh, compared them to tomato seeds that uh, only have lived here on Earth. And she's using X-chips, to monitor the development of those two so she can compare the two two, uh, sets of uh, seeds with each other. And she's using X-chips and a Raspberry Pi, which uh, our X-chip also connects to. And uh, so she's using those to actually monitor these seeds here. And I think she's at grade 11, 12, something like that. So uh, that's her project. And... Some of them, that maybe sounds a little bit extraordinary, and it is for some of the students They have a little bit of extra help, uh, maybe from other family members or, you know, older brother or sister. Um, but there's a lot of these projects where they simply just have used it to to say, okay, I actually want to measure the CO2 level in my classroom and use it to, uh, should we open a window or not? You know, is it, uh, do we have fresh air? S- things that you can't measure otherwise. So there's many different levels. Nowadays, we say uh, this thing here is from preschooler to PhD because there's many universities that have picked it up. Uh, it, especially in freshman years, there's a number of engineering studies where a student comes from a high school and have been tinkering with electronics and built something using a Raspberry Pi or Arduino or some of these smaller computers that they that, that have been playing with and that decide, now I want to be... And engineer, electronics engineer. So they're going to university, and the first year in university, it's just theory. It's a lot of uh, numbers and formulas on a whiteboard, and a lot of the engineering students drops out uh, after that first year. So a lot of universities have said, listen, we have to have something to keep them going. So they have, you know, adopted the X chips, and said, okay, in the initial years we can start playing with that. But then they keep going with it because now they have to do a project later on and it's a little bit easier to click X-chips together than build your own circuitry. So it keeps on growing with the students. There's other schools that say, listen, this is great. We, wanna, we have to start learning programming early on and we have to have something that's exciting for the student or something that can touch. Many times when we program a laptop, it's just there, it's a virtual world. But if they have the X-chips, they're kind of like we can excite them earlier. So it kind of like there's a lot of middle schools that are using it now just to kind of like get a literacy in electronics and 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 um, computing in general
0: you sound very passionate about the topic and of course we hear so much about coding and programming these days in stem why is it so important to have these skills
1: so it's 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 um in you know first of all to I'm passionate about education now because I work with this in here, so let me be honest I haven't always been passionate about education It's basically not my own necessarily um but the 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 fact is that education is uh, is the key for getting out and getting a proper job in the future and the biggest problem is that uh, in the future all jobs are stem jobs World economic Forum stated back in 2016 that 80% of all jobs in the, by 2020 are STEM jobs. So we have to make sure that uh, everybody goes down the road with STEM jobs. Another problem is that a lot of women doesn't, uh, there's not a lot of women in STEM jobs. So worldwide, the number is around 14% of all STEM jobs is occupied by women. In Africa, that number drops to 7%. So you kind of like eliminate and, nearly half a population from something where in the future 80% of us, if we want to have a job, have to have a STEM job. So we kind of like said, okay, uh, if you go, if you consider STEM in general, whether it's science or technology engineering math, there's always an an effect of that you use some kind of instrument, you build some electronic circuit, or you use an uh, electronic circuits that's out there. Or You have, like, some measurements of uh, biology and and chemistry. It doesn't really matter what subject it is. But it always eventually ends up that you have to do something on your laptop. We can't imagine ourselves using STEM and then not using a laptop. We can argue what is programming. But many people say, no, 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 I'm really, really good at uh, Excel spreadsheets. But uh, when they then start, you know, uh, considering how some of the formula works and you can program in Excel and things like that. No, 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 I can't do that. Well, in that case, you maybe use 10% of Excel and not like Excel full out. Uh, is that programming? Yeah, some of that stuff is programming. You know, we used to say in the old days when my dad said, please, can you help me uh, get the VCR programmed? You know, that's programming. Or you will program your microwave to, uh, you know, cook your meal at a certain time. It's maybe not the most difficult programming, but it's still programming. So, configuration using um, uh, using a screen and keyboard and things like that to get stuff uh, to operate properly. It's there may be kind of like a an area where you can say, "Well, I'm just filling in a form." It's not really that programming, but eventually, that is where the job is going to be. Is that you have to be able to um, to dig into it further. That's where you are. You're getting advantage. And and I always focus on the programming because it doesn't really matter what other STEM degree you go down. The programming will always help you. It's little and a, I have an accent because I was born in Denmark and I lived in South Africa the last 20 years, but I still have my Danish accent. And uh, my English wasn't uh, this great when I moved to South Africa. But it's certainly one of those things that... You know, today, it's a good idea you have the English language uh, when you live in a global world like we do. If I only spoke Danish, there's only 5 million people in Denmark. I will have a limitation. And there's a lot of people around the world that for many, many, many years have said, no, no, we have to have one of the big languages. We have to understand one of the big languages. Now that language is programming. Now we have to get into this. Um, I, I, I find with, with education that um, I, I normally have this little uh, little test with people where I say to them, imagine you have to make a movie and you have to cast two members and the one member of that um, cast is a computer hacker. Now imagine this computer hacker and I ask people, describe the computer hacker, just give me the age of this computer hacker and people will come around 19 years of age. That's a computer hacker. Then I say, give me a, professor in math, a math professor, and it will hit like around 65. And I say, isn't it interesting that you take a computer hacker in a subject that changed fundamentally over five years, in a subject that's been taught nowhere, that is able to break into a three-letter security organization when he's 19, compared to a math professor who has started learning math from grade one in a subject that haven't changed radically in the last 4,000 years. Why is that? Why is that different? And it's the way we we, we train or lecture or teach that in math we have to learn about 2 and 2 is 4 before we can get to differential integration. And we have been using that top-down way of learning also, for example, electronics. So we have to learn resistors today and then next week capacitor, and next week... We learn about um, uh, diodes or something else. And my philosophy is, no, 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 we don't learn it like that. Start with something that's fully fledged, that works perfectly. And then you can learn about resistors down the line. That's how the computer hackers learn it, because they get a computer that works perfectly. Let's play a game with some friend. The friend wins. You ask the friend, why are you winning all the time? He says, okay, I tell you, I changed the graphics card. Well, show me. You change the graphic card in computer, he still wins. What you did now, well, I upgraded the memory, okay? Eventually, you figure out, if I have to beat him, I have to start studying this myself. I have to Google, YouTube, figure out how to do it. And as I go down the line, I start modifying my computer myself and figure out a little trick here and there to make it better. And after a year, I'm fully fledged in this thing because I had a top-down learning experience. And I use the same idea when it comes to, for example, a, eight-year-old who gets a go-kart, you know, when he's 19 years old, he can take a screwdriver and hit it on an engine block, listen to it and say, this is a carburetor," simply because he started with a fully-fledged go-kart when he started learning. Imagine you and I have to build a car before we got a driver license, or it would be very quiet roads. And that's kind of like how we learn from the bottom up many times, where the top-down is a way that we believe that you get more kids excited, in, especially in STEM education.
0: I understand, and I, I agree completely with that. I do know that things like data analytics and even coding and programming are being introduced into, say, secondary schools around the world in varying degrees. Some don't have it at all. Um, many students don't want, know what those terms mean. And I think that they feel intimidated by a lot of the language around this. And I'm talking about students but also educators. So what would you say to, say, the high school educator, high school student who says, wow, that's not for me. That's way too high tech. But yet you're saying we all need to embrace this down the line. So how, how do they get past that intimidation factor?
1: So we're sitting in a business school, And uh, business schools have over um, the last number of years realized that we can't teach our students anything. We have to facilitate the learning. When you put a class together with students in a business school, they probably have the knowledge already. We just need to move it from the one student to all the students. So we facilitate the knowledge. A lot of the teachers have to look at when it comes to technology teaching, they have to facilitate this in here. They can't be expected to know all the uh, intricacies of any specific subject. It just—if you wanted to start learning about programming in the early, early year, or you want to learn about electronics and things like that—you can't have, you know, professors going out there and start teaching in the middle school because you simply don't have the capacity to 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 have it trained like that. So many teachers what they have to do is that they have to have a a mindset of that I'm facilitating this thing here. I will be there will be students here, even in my low grade now, that will know a lot more about this thing here that I will ever do. And we have we 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 many times accepted this already because we had like we had our kid programming our, you know, VCR, you know, which is, was back then. You know, now we have them programming all stuff in the house. You know, we're not like, uh, I don't know how that works, but you program the irrigation or whatever technology it is. Okay? And we accept that. Even if we are teachers or even if we like, uh, you know, scientists or even if we're clever on something, we just accept that the kids understand a little bit more. When we've been around in the U.S. here and trained a lot of teachers in this, the most, the teachers that have uh, most confidence in this thing here, so we there's a especially a teacher she's a used to be a rocket scientist now she's a stem director for seven schools in in uh, the west end of uh, Virginia and uh, when she comes to to our lessons and um, and she have like the engineering degree and background when she comes to our training, she takes a student with her because she knows that the student will catch up much faster than her, so she will take one or two of the clever students in a class and say, "Listen, you come along for this training here." because you have to help me when we get back in the class and teach the other kids how we do this thing here. And that's unfortunately just how it's going to be. The technology moves to such a pace that you, know, you, you can't expect to follow as a, as a, as a teacher. There was another thing if when we were teaching math, which haven't changed in a long time, and, or, you know, things was a little bit more, it took years or decades before it changed. But in technology... It's just next morning it's new, and the students uh, will know about this thing. They will pick it up much faster. They will watch the YouTube. They have better access to material now than we ever had before. You know, in 30 years ago, we had to have this the knowledge from the teachers because we didn't have YouTube or Google. Now we have it, and we even have it on a device that in a school bus on the way to school we can pick up on stuff much faster than the teachers who unfortunately maybe have to drive there and don't have those five minutes to pick up what happened since yesterday. So, as a teacher, we have to just accept that we have to facilitate that knowledge. I have a little, kind of like this, I think it was Steve Jobs who said, Listen, you know, you hire the best people um, to your job and then you stay in well back. And it's kind of like this feeling where you kind of like you, you, you dress your. Your students with the technology and the opportunity to figure out this thing. You give them access to the Internet. You give them the technology they can work with. You get them opportunity to the laptop. And then you make sure you are giving them that room and space to actually develop this thing here. And what you have to do as a teacher is maybe more, you know, encourage and figure out and help them saying, listen, you have to come up with a project. Can I help you? come with some ideas? Can I push in the right direction? It's more like a role as a psychologist more than it's uh, actually, you know, I know everything about programming. Uh, I don't. And I developed this thing here. I have to give up, but I'm confident enough that, hey, I find some people who can help me making sure this thing here works.
0: I'm I'm also intrigued by the fact that I hear a lot of students talking about self-learning especially when it comes to technology and coding and programming, that they're going on YouTube or they're going on online and they're, they're learning things themselves because they're not necessarily getting it yet in the classroom.
1: Yeah, so we have that problem way more. It's um, uh, a much bigger problem in South Africa than many other places. So during apartheid, which uh, ended uh, uh, 24 years ago, it was uh, illegal to teach black students math and science. So um, that's 24 years ago, but a lot of the teachers that was around back then doesn't have a math and science background. And of course, there's a, a lot of students. Um, there's a lot of teachers who uh, comes out there and have to try to help teaching in math and science. And and they don't have the background because they couldn't get it that way. So that have been, you know... Fast track to learn some math, but being fast track to learn math in the later states is 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 tough. I mean, it's you know something we normally in school when you go to school we learn it over twelve sixteen years. So so fast tracking a, a, a teacher and this thing here, um, you're not getting the right um, um, help to 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 teach math. So what we're trying to do when we go out to school, say we try to say to the students, it's your responsibility to 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 uh, to find the learning yourself. You can't rely on your teachers. You have to figure out how do I get that knowledge yourself. You can't just say, listen, my teacher didn't tell me, so therefore I don't know, and then I go through life because listen, when you get out of school, the teacher's not there, but it's your life. So you have to take responsibility for your learning yourself, and uh, and you have to find that thing that's your passion, and then go down that line and learn it. And there is. Lots of help to get because there are a lot of other students that is in like uh, same age as you are in a you know a teenager who has been tinkering with something and they make a YouTube video out of it. Some of them actually even becomes millionaire out of this thing here just by posting on YouTube. So there is a lot of that because everybody have that dream. So there are a lot of help to get. There's a lot of small project where you say, "Oh, this is exciting! I want to try to do this thing here. Let me get some of these components and put it together." Doesn't matter what it is. There's a lot of that. So have it as a mindset to say, listen, I need to figure out what my passion is. I need to you know, take responsibility for my learning myself. And I can't necessarily expect that my teacher knows everything. It's just that's not the world we're living in anymore. It's basically the knowledge being generated and distributed so fast as it is now.
0: Well, thank you, Biarca It's been great talking to you.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.